Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. By a root, obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only, where an idolon named Knight on a black throne reigns upright. I have reached these lands, but newly, from an ultimate dim thule, from a wild weird climb that layeth sublime, out of space, out of time. Dreamland, by Edgar Allan Poe. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we're going to be diving into the second of our planar deep dive looks. We're going to be taking a glance at the Shadowfell. So last week we covered the Feywilds, and as vibrant and as bright as the Feywilds were, this is the opposite reflection or the opposite mirror of the material plane. And it is literally as opposite to the Feywilds as you could possibly imagine. The only real similarity are two. One, it's not the material plane. Two, you just might die here. It just might. The way I like to think of it is the Feywild is mania while Shadowfell is depression. Oh, absolutely. And on that note, we're going to go ahead and place a content warning before we start diving in because we're going to be going to some dark places with this particular episode just because that's the nature of the Shadowfell. And so if you are the sort of person who may have issues with talking about depression or talking about, well, atrocities in general, if you have PTSD or, you know, depressive conditions, you might want to sit this one out. We will pick up with you next week. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason. Mental health is very important. So if this is going to bother you, feel free to sit this one out, listen to another podcast, find something else you can enjoy. That's great. You won't hurt our feelings. Not at all. Something I have to do, like I said, I do substitute teach. And every year I have to do the yearly trainings and things like that. And there is a section because apparently it's state law here in Tennessee, but you have to do so much training in quote, quote, suicide prevention. And so at least once a day a year when I have to do this, because it's again, part of my required yearly updates, I've got to sit through a two hour online lecture discussion thing about teen suicide. And it sucks. I mean, it's absolutely horrible and it drains everything of me. And if there was ever the whole Dementors thing from Harry Potter, it's something like that where you need chocolate afterwards. You just have a glum day no matter what. That's the sort of feel that the Shadowfell innately has. And therefore, because it is innate into the realm, we do need to discuss it. And so, like I said, if that's something that you have a hard time with, no feelings hurt, step back away. If it's something you're curious about and you want to explore as a possibility, then that's why we're going to examine it because it is a plane. It is a place to have campaigns. It can be interesting to a point. It is a very difficult place to run a scenario in or a campaign in, but there are possibilities there and it would be a disservice not to at least touch upon it. Right. And there are published campaigns that take place here. Curse of Strahd takes place in the Shadowfell. It takes place in Barovia, which is one of the demi-planes within the Shadowfell. So there is a way to do it, and Van Richten's Guide is going to be coming out pretty soon, detailing a bunch of the various demi-planes within the Shadowfell that you can run games in. So it is something that is doable, but you have to go into it understanding the ramifications of what it is and how it can affect the people at your table, not just their characters, but the actual players. Right. That said... If you're into this kind of thing, if you've got that inner 80s goth kid, then go ahead, kick off the lights. Let's read some Poe and probably put some typo negative on in the background and we could really dive into this. You and your typo negative, James. I do. Join me some typo negative. What can I say? No shame. (laughs) To each their own, I suppose. Okay, James, do you want to go ahead and uh, kick this off with some meaty, meaty lore? So the lore here is not quite as meaty as the Feywilds are in To be perfectly honest, that fits this realm perfectly. So the lore isn't as meaty, but that kind of works for the Shadowfell because as we talked about, it's the exact opposite of the Feywild. The lore is there to a point. The Shadowfell itself is a combination of planes again, as we have it in 5th edition, came about in 4th edition. We've talked before about how 4th edition's been largely frowned upon. It wasn't received terribly well. But as we start talking about these different planes and things like that, it looks like they actually 
did put a bit of work into your scenes and scenarios for fourth edition. So I'm probably going to begrudgingly give the Wizards a tip ahead of that. But again, Shadowfell was a combination of various planes as before. The plane of Shadow used to be its own demiplane, and they combined that with a couple other planes, and they made Shadowfell as we know it. There's a bunch of similarities for a lot of old lore. I enjoy different forms of mythology. One of the things I was discussing with Ian as we talk about Shadowfell, that everything in here is drab, it's gray. Literally, when you get to the Shadowfell, there is no color. Everything is literally in black and white. Everything is gray tone, per the description from the texts. So you become apathetic within the realm. You actually have to roll a d6 to see what kind of effect the Shadowfell has on you. And these are optional rules. You don't have to do this. I think it does add a certain amount of immersion. So once you enter the Shadowfell, you have to succeed on a DC 10 wisdom save. And if you fail the wisdom save, you roll a D6. On a 1 to 3, you suffer apathy. So you have disadvantage on death saving throws and on dexterity checks for initiative and gain the following flaw. I don't believe I can make a difference to anyone or anything. A 4 to 5 is Dread. Character has disadvantage on all saving throws and gains the following flaw. I am convinced that this place is going to kill me. And on a 6, you get Madness. So you get disadvantage on ability checks and saving throws. They use Intelligence, Wisdom, or Charisma. And gain the following flaw. I can't tell what's real anymore. So again, these are all things that... You should talk about this with your players before you use this optional rule because someone at your table may have a mental health concern that you don't want to aggravate with something like this. Right. So again, we're going to talk about apathy. We're going to talk about depression because that is, I mean, some of these things, particularly like the apathy and that sense of dread are very real symptoms and problems with depression. It's that feeling of when you've had that long day and you're tired and you just don't want, you literally don't want to do anything. You just want to sit and say, screw the world, I'm done. And that's what that apathy is going to feel like. And so this is going to be reflected. Again, everything's gray. You're not going to find a bunch of parties. This isn't going to be like Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. And when you go into the afterlife, everything's bright and vibrant. More like Corpse Bride when they're in the living world in the Victorian era where everything grayscale, everything very stolid, very severe. Getting to Shadowfell is different things. And for some people, it's a punishment for their amount of evil. So they can either be contained or somehow repent. And so the entire area is going to affect the players because like the whole demiplane itself is a form of of punishment almost. Again, talking about ancient mythology, I was talking with Ian. The Mesopotamian cities of Ur and Sumer, so going way back even before the Egyptians, their ideas of the afterlife was a bit complex, but they believed that everyone basically went to an underground area where their souls walked in the darkness and ate cold clay. Didn't matter if you were good, didn't matter if you were evil, that was just the fate of life and the afterworld. You went and ate a gray paste and that was it. And that's kind of how Shadowfell feels to a point. Again, there's nothing to be excited about. There's nothing really enthralling. If you go here, you are going here for a purpose. You might forget that purpose because of apathy or whatever else, but you're not going here to stay here. It's not like the Feywilds where, hey, I'm going to go here and there's going to be a bunch of bright colors. There's going to be a bunch of massive battles. There's a bunch of excitement one way or the other. This is just that crushing despair constantly piling on. Yeah, it's a place you go to with a purpose and you get in, get it done, get out. Right. Another example that I had brought up when we were talking, you know, pre-production was if you've ever seen the anime Death Note, the Shinigami for the Japanese, which are basically spirits of death. You know, they call them demons for lack of a better term in translation, but they're death spirits. But they're in their realm where the death spirits live and they're bored. There's nothing to do. There's no excitement. They're sitting or watching humanity because basically it's the only thing on TV. So this one Shinigami named Ryuk drops the death note on Earth and that kind of starts everything. But the whole thing starts because they're up there, they're immortal, they can't die, and there's just nothing. Just boredom. Right. If I recall correctly, there's an area of the underworld in Greek mythology that had a fairly similar aspect to it. Yeah, I'm trying to think. The river, it wasn't Leith, was it the river Styx? It was between the river and the fields of Elysium. Yes. And again, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't Tartarus, or was it Tartarus? 
It may have been Tartarus. It may have been Tartarus. Let me double check that. It was the area where you weren't a hero, so you didn't go to Elysium, and you weren't terrible, so you didn't go get punished. This is where everyone else just sort of lumped in and lingered. No, Tartarus was for the wicked. I'm trying to think of where. Okay. I know what you're talking about, but yeah, again, it was that middle area. Another person who touches on this kind of middle area is in Dante's Inferno. If you ever get a chance to read the Divine Comedy, it's amazing. But I've heard a bunch of people refer to it as Dante's Virgil fan fiction. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that, <laughs> that's pretty much it. So again, going back to the Aeneid, the Aeneid gets to travel the underworld and come out. Dante did the same thing for Virgil, and he actually has Virgil in as a guide in the early part of the Inferno. But the first level of Hades is where basically the heathens and the unbaptized went. And again, this is coming from an extremely old Catholic mindset. So keep that in mind. But if you weren't baptized or you didn't have a chance or if you were born before the time of Christ to the Catholics, it didn't matter. You were doomed to Hades in one form or the other. But if you hadn't sinned terribly, so like the scholars, the poets, the unbaptized were in the first area or the first level of hell. And they called it limbo. And that's actually where the term limbo comes from. And again, it was this kind of gray, neutral, nothing happened. It wasn't a real punishment, but there was no joy. There was no paradise for that. And they were just kind of, that's where everybody lives. And they too were on the other sides of the river Styx and Leith and all of them as well. Needless to say, Dante borrowed a lot from Roman and Greek mythology as Virgil's Aeneid was basically Virgil's fanfic of Homer's Odyssey. So when you get to Dante's Inferno, it's literally a fanfic of a fanfic of all things. Right. So, But still a, a really interesting and really neat story. And the actual full divine comedy, he goes through obviously hell, then he goes through purgatory, and then he sees paradise and goes through all the different layers. If you're a fan of history like Ian and I are, it's really fun because you can see where he took the famous people of his time that he may have had a beef with or something and stuck them in different areas, which is kind of funny. It was a kind of a slight, so it's kind of a political book as well, but... That is a different rabbit for a different trail. All art is political. Granted. I mean, all art is delivering a message. Very true. But again, everything here in Shadowfell, it is going to be that very dark, very glum, stereotypical goth kid where they're just, eh, it's not worth it. You know, they're all dressed in black and they're just like drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. And again, I'm talking 80s goth, not like 90s or, you know, hot topic goth, but, you know, just the old school Poe and old music goth. So. Are you are you referencing <laughs> that episode of South Park? To a point, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> as well as, you know, the general stereotype, but South Park does cover that quite nicely. The difference between the emos and the goths and... Yes. What was the other group? I forget. I can't either. It's been a long time. It's been forever <laughs> since I've seen that episode. All of that said, as blasé and as draining as the Shadowfell is, and this is probably the really insidious part of it, there are a lot of dangerous, scary things lurking about too. Oh, yes. And so that's kind of the whole thing is the whole atmosphere of Shadowfell is disarming and not that you think it's safe, but that you just don't care anymore. And now something's going to pounce on you. But who cares? It's not, oh, if it kills me, I mean, so what? I'm not going to do anything. It doesn't matter if I die, right? right? yeah. That's, that's that whole, and again, that's what makes Shadowfell such a dangerous and insidious place. It really does. So there are a few major landmarks in the Shadowfell. The most prominent of which is probably Lathurna, which is the city of ghosts or whatever you want to refer to it. It's the city where the Raven Queen resides. And according to lore, all souls when the mortal dies, travel through Lathurna, and the Raven Queen assigns them their afterlife. Right. So Lathurna is kind of the stereotypical Grim Reaper, for lack of a better term. If you've ever read Pierre's Anthony's Incarnations of Immortality, his version of death is really interesting. So all the neutral souls were basically weighed and measured by death to decide if they ascended or descended. And that's kind of what Lathurna does. Lathurna is the ultimate gatekeeper. Everyone has to knock at her gate at one point or another, and then she makes a call one way. And even her lore by herself as a Raven Queen is fairly interesting because she actually stepped up and killed the god of death and became the god of death, but the other gods kind of ganged up on her and locked her into a more neutral position so she couldn't overthrow or disrupt power too much. Another example of this, if you ever read the old Dragonlance novels that tend to be Forgotten Realms, but one of my favorite characters, Rastalin, almost does the same thing. But it comes to the point that 
various things happen in the novels and he's able to see the future and realizes that he will win, eventually fight the other gods and win. But since he would be a god of destruction and death, he couldn't create anything. After everything died, he realized he'd be bored. So he aborts his plan. <laughs> and this is the reason why Nerul is no longer in the pantheon of D&D gods is because the Raven Queen killed him. Right. So this is a good usurpation. But again, even going back through, you know, the concept that Rastalin realized that he would win everything he wanted and then ultimately be bored. He realized he would be in the Shadowlands because there would just be nothing and he couldn't do anything after that. And so what? And so he had enough humanity left that he decided that wasn't what he wanted. Right. And so part of the reason that the Shadowfell is so dangerous is because there are spirits that get cast out of Lotherna that don't get progressed on to some afterlife or another. They don't get to progress on into Elysium or Mount Celestia or even get sent into the Nine Hells for punishment. They were bad eggs, but not quite bad enough. And so they just get cast out into the Shadowfell. And so you end up having vengeful spirits floating around in the forests and whatnot, just looking for vessels, basically. So per the text coming through here from Laterna, it says, Here they are judged by the Raven Queen, and they learn of their fate. Those that are refused entry by the Raven Queen, whether because they are too far evil or their souls are broken, or other mysterious reasons prowl through the forest and their malice lashing out at any mortal foolish enough to get close to them. So again, when we're talking about madness and things like that, you either have like the epitome of evil roaming these areas or people with broken souls. So whatever that's going to be in your campaign or your story, these aren't going to be clear, cognizant, healthy entities. They're going to be very likely mad. They're probably going to be bitter. And so depending on how you want to portray these, you can just say they're crazy or they're sobbing or whatever. But if you wanted to get really detailed and in-depth, you can go into a lot of what's going to break a soul or make a person so broken they can't enter an afterlife. So again, like we talked about in the beginning, this can get really dark really, really fast. Right. And I mean, some examples would be maybe somebody who entered into a pact with a demon or a devil and sold a portion or the entirety of their soul. Right. Or even a genie, because they they also deal in souls. Right. So that could be something, perhaps someone who was under compulsion, someone who was under like a dominate spell and did some rather heinous acts right. at the behest of who was dominating them and either died while being dominated or died shortly after being dominated and realizing what they had done trying to reconcile their actions something very drastic like that would probably be enough to break a soul i was gonna say how dark do you want to get uh, i mean yeah Absolutely. I mean, you could be, you know, the town guard where the big bad evil guy came in and murdered your family in front of you and then killed you last or something like that. And so now you have this vengeful spirit, but you can't do anything about it. And that could cause a broken spirit. Again, acts of betrayal, either for you were under compulsion or you thought that you were doing the right thing. And now you are so full of remorse that maybe they're suicides, you know, things like that. And again, this can get really dark. So I don't want to dwell on it too, too terribly long, but these are all very fitting pieces for the realm and the scenario. Absolutely, yes. I would almost go so far as to include people who die in the Shadowfell as a result of this apathy or this despair that they receive just from the ambient energies of the plane. That would be very likely, yes. Because the plane is permeated with negative energy right one of the planes that got pulled into the shadow fell whenever they were combining the plane of shadow with stuff was the plane of negative energy i don't think it was pulled in in its entirety i think that the plane of negative energy still exists on its own but it does have a lot of bleed through here in the shadow fell so if you were to succumb to that despair, to that apathy, that negative energy is already there and it's already permeating and something like that could tarnish or damage a soul to the point where it couldn't get in. Absolutely. Like I said, there's just so, so much in here. But yeah, that plane of negative energy, that veil is super thin. So it's really easy to cross in between, which 
might be something you would use in your campaign as a hook or another transport. That was the other thing. We'll cover it later, but when and why you wind up in Shadowfell. And so we'll not get too far ahead of ourselves for now. So there are a couple of cities aside from Lotharna, yes, within the Shadowfell to discuss, because one of the main aspects of Lotharna that makes it interesting and unique is that the Raven Queen does not allow mortals inside. At all, yeah. She just flat out, no, mortals can't get in. Only the spirits of the dead can get in. Which actually, that would make an interesting thing for a spirit that couldn't get in. What if the body is brain dead, but in a vegetative state? Oh, Oh, and so so the yeah. spirit has already separated from the body, but the body is still alive. So technically, they're still a living mortal. And so they can't get in until their body dies. Okay, so I'll, I'm going to be a bad person here. I'm sorry, guys. But you say that and I immediately picture a lich killing an NPC or a party member and then putting them in stasis right before they finally tick out at negative 10 hit points or whatever. And keeping them locked there because they know their spirit would be locked in Lotharna. And so this would be like the Lich is doing this just out of sheer spite. Yeah, that would be nasty. And again, this would be the type of creature or character that you'd probably encounter in the Shadowfell. That Lich would probably be well on his way of being sucked in on his own rights. And again, that'll be something we brush up against later. But yeah, I could see something that in City is happening intentionally, not just yes. accidentally. So getting back on to the topic that I was getting to, <laughs> there are a couple of major cities within the Shadowfell. One of them, the largest and most prosperous, is called Gloomrot. That's rot as in wrought iron, not rot as in rotting something. Rot with a W. And as much as we've sat there and talked about as dismal and as dark and as dreary as the Shadowfell is, Gloomrot's kind of interesting. It is. It is a sort of a bazaar, a marketplace where people can go to get dark things. So this would be your necromancers and your liches and your cultists and all of your evil people would go to Gloomrot to get the reagents that they need for their dark magic. Those really, really rare, hard-to-find things that are probably contraband anywhere else, you're probably going to find in Gloomrot. And that would be one reason why you would come to Shadowfell. This is probably going to be the very dark version of the City of Brass, where we talked about that market bazaar that has all the everythings. I don't know if you'd want to go there first, or if you just want to skip straight to the Gloomrot first. That would be a hard coin flip, I think, depending on your scenario or what was going on or what you were trying to piece together with your parts. I think it would all depend on what you're trying to make. Possibly. If you're trying to, say, go through a ritual to become a lich... You'd go to Gloomrot first, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even if you're going to do something like make a flesh golem, I would say you would be going to Gloomrot to get components for that. Right, because you're going to be trying to dodge a lot of security and a lot of questions in the City of Brass anyway. I mean, it's neutral, but neutral doesn't mean, hey, we're going to ignore an obvious problem over here. Right, and even then, when you go into Gloomrot, something that you want for this ritual that you're going to be doing you're probably not the only person looking for that particular component. Right. And there's probably someone else who's big and bad and mean who is more than happy to liberate you from your soul to get what they want. Exactly. Again, this isn't a safe place. <laughs> not by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Again, the threats are not as in your face as they are in the Feywilds. But this place tends to dull your senses. And again, like we talked about, if the Feywild's mania where you're on point, everything's on edge, you are much... You're just overwhelmed. Right. You're in sensory overload in the Feywild. That's the whole thing is there are so many bright, shiny things in your face all the time that you have trouble telling which one of them is trying to kill you right now. Whereas in the Shadowfell, everything is so dull and drab and subdued that you just don't notice the things that are trying to kill you. Exactly. That's the very sneaky part about this. And I cannot convey how sneaky that is enough because this is like driving your car while you're falling asleep, barely able to keep your eyes open. You're tired. You're just trying to get to the point and you have no idea how much danger you're actually in. Yeah, it's scary. But anyway, so the other city that I wanted to bring up is one that is mentioned in the Dungeon Master's Guide specifically for the Forgotten Realms, the City of Evernight. Yes, I was going to bring this up if you didn't. Yeah, the City of Evernight is the reflection of the City of Neverwinter. So it is actually a copy of Neverwinter transposed into 
the Shadowfell because they are Echo Realms, because the Shadowfell is an echo of the material plane. And so loosely, the geography still matches. Right. So the city does still exist in both places. Exactly. So when we talked about the Feywild, we talked about portals and how portals can kind of exist on both sides. So like if you had a lake in the material plane, like I said, you'd have a crystal pond in the Feywilds and you'd have a peat bog or a swamp in Shadowfell. Evernight is that reflection. And even the city of Evernight, a lot of the things like the walls are broken down, the boards are rotted out and crumbling. When I read this description, really the first thing I thought of was the ghost mansions and the old Mario Super Nintendo games, or even on Mario Kart where the boards are falling down and everything's kind of gloomy and you've got the ghosts kind of haunting around. It's that decrepit, decayed, very soggy, wet feel. Yeah, it's kind of a Silent Hill kind of vibe Absolutely, going on. Yeah, you need Pyramid Hesit and they're dragging a sword around. <laughs> yeah, I would even go and say that it's a little bit less overt the danger yes. than Silent Hill. You know, one thing that they do mention is that Evernight's primarily inhabited by the undead. Yes. As the undead are very common in the Shadowfell, because it is permeated with negative energy, that is the sort of thing that animates the dead. It's so, just, again, yeah, that's, you know, peanut butter and jelly, those two things are just going together. Yeah. Absolutely. So the other entities that, you know, from the text, City of Dead, unhinged necromancers. So not just your everyday necromancers, your unhinged necromancers. So you've got the craziest of the crazy up here. Slave traders, because of course, why not? And followers of dark deities. Right. So these are the people who they get kicked out of society on the material plane because of their worship of blood for the blood god and... So they run away to the only place that they can, which is a place where they can still do blood for the blood god because there's no mortal authority telling them that they can't. Right. And so, again, if you're looking for some really dark contraband, this is probably where you're going to go. If you need a couple billion zombies for your zombie horde, this is probably where you're going to go. So that's a thing. That's the things you're going to look for, things you're generally going to find here. Evernight is a city of trade, which seems really strange as drab as we've described everything, but still happens. So, I mean, I guess we've all had boring days at the market, but there you are. And so for people who are familiar and follow Critical Role, they're near the end of campaign one, uh, Matt Mercer's city of Tharamphala, where Vecna was. That is in the Shadowfell. Yes, and Vecna is definitely inhabitant of the Shadowfell. Yes, Vecna is a very prominent inhabitant of the Shadowfell in 4th edition. He is trapped in his demiplane in the Shadowfell. I don't remember what the name of his demiplane is, but... And I don't know if he's technically still in the Shadowfell in 5th edition. I believe he is, yes. Vecna is one of those deities that I really like running him as a villain in my games. Or I did until Matt Mercer did it. And, you know, now I can't be as cool as Matt Mercer. So Nobody's ever going to be as cool as Matt Mercer. It's just not going to happen. No. Anyway, but Tharamphala is another city. If you read the descriptions of Evernight, there are a lot of parallels between the two. So Tharamphala is another city that is, it's a crumbled city. You know, the pockmarked walls, the inhabited by the undead and deranged necromancer cultists. So yeah, there's a lot of parallels between the two. And I would almost go so far as to say that Tharamphala is basically just a reskin of Evernight. It sounds like it, yeah. But really, there's no reason, because if Evernight has its reflection, then you'd imagine any city of notable size should have a reflection. And they would all probably look the same, because a city is a city is a city, more or less, in the material plane. So using that as an example, you probably really easily could build your own city in the Shadowfell, if you were going to start running a full campaign or scenarios or needed a place for your, your party members to, to camp for the night or whatever, do some urban landscaping in Shadowfell, you can use Evernight, you can use Tharamphala, you can just reskin pretty much any city or town in the material plane because everything does have its reflection. Right. And so one of the aspects of the Shadowfell that I don't think carried over very well into 5th edition, at least in the descriptions given in the DMG, is that it's 
always shifting. It's malleable. It's always adjusting just a little bit to the point where if you're in the shadow fell, you don't notice it. But if you leave and come back, it has become completely different. One of the things I had read, like we talked about, you can roll those stats and try to figure out how the shadow fell is going to affect you. And on a six, you get that madness and you think the area is trying to kill you. That's because the area is literally trying to kill you. So it will shift in a hostile way. So you could be standing on the edge and a cliff face may shift suddenly towards your feet or kind of creep an edge towards your feet because you're not paying attention. Again, it's that apathy thing. So you're just like, oh, look, a train's coming. Who cares? You know, that kind of thing. Or the train's coming. It's going to be close. I don't mind. And then suddenly the ground starts shifting. And instead of standing next to the track, you find yourself on the tracks because the realm's canon will shift and change, which depending on how imaginative you are as a DM or a player, you can do a lot of things with that. All right, so now that we've talked a bit about the Shadowfell, let's talk about how you get there. This is a trickier thing. It's not quite as tricky as the Feywilds were. I think it's harder than the Feywild. Depending, I mean, depending on how you do it. Again, it's... Because the Shadowfell doesn't really have permanent portals that is correct and that does make things- you don't have permanent crossings like you do with the Feywild. exactly that is true so you have to seek out these shadow crossings that's the areas where the material plane and the shadow fell overlap where you can cross over from one to the other they're most frequently in locations associated with death right so graveyards are going to be your biggest your first place that you're gonna look one of the examples that i read was the bottom of an open grave. Right. So that would be something where you would see the shadows shifting ever so slightly down in the bottom of this grave. And that would be your cue to know that that would be a place where you could cross over into the shadow fell if you were to jump down into the grave. Exactly. Ancient battlefields, kind of the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Old crypts. Battlefields, crypts and mausoleums. So the shadows in the corners, the recesses where the bodies are stored, anywhere where there is perpetual darkness is a place where you can have a shadow crossing. The corner of the noble's manor where Timmy and Rachel were killed as little kids for a dark sacrifice, that kind of thing. Obviously, you know, that darkness being held. So again, depending on how dark you want to get, Shadowfell, perfect for your Halloween seasons. Generally, if you want to go that route with things, if you want to get... Absolutely. One of the places that... I would associate with a shadow crossing would be a haunted house. Absolutely, yes. A house that is actually haunted. Yes. So like the basement of this haunted house is the transition between. And this could be one of those where it is a longer term shadow crossing. Right. Because it does say that they may last for minutes. They may last for years. Right. So this could be a place where the shadow fell has a much stronger connection and this could also be the reason why the house is haunted. Yeah, that would because, fully explain the haunting. Yeah, because if there's this shadow crossing here that is a long-term shadow crossing, there is negative energy from the Shadowfell leaking out into this house. Right, so you're going to have that sense of dread just kind of pouring out of this portal no matter what. Absolutely. And then that negative energy is going to latch on to any spirits that may be nearby. And there may be spirits that cross over from the Shadowfell into the material plane. Yeah, perfectly done. And that would be your ghosts and your wraiths and your banshees. That would be where they would come in. Exactly. And those are that is a perfect way to do that. And that's a good scenario set up, a good way to roll that out. The other way to get into Shadowfell is the route that Vecna and Strahd took. And you were just so horribly evil. You are so incredibly bad on the mortal plane that the Shadowfell literally reaches out, grabs you, and pulls you into your own demi-plane of Shadowfell. Yes, that is definitely a thing. Which is fairly damn impressive if you ask me. I mean, you are so bad, another plane reached out and grabbed you. Yes, and it is specified that you are the supreme ruler of your demi-plane. You just can't get out of it. Right. So it's, it's almost like the timeout chair <laughs> to make it kind of blase. It's where you go to sit and think about what you've done. The problem is that the individuals who get sucked in aren't the sort of people who think about what they've done. Right. So they're like, Hey, I they, can they do just whatever. keep doing exactly. And because it is 
incorporated into the lore that if someone who has been sucked into the Shadowfell repents and actually reforms themselves and recovers themselves, they can leave. No one ever has, but you could. It is possible. Yeah, if you can redeem yourself, you can leave the Shadowfell. Which would be a really, like, if you were going to build a whole campaign based on the Shadowfell, or even doing some light planar jumping, but doing a lot in the Shadowfell, trying to get a big bad evil guy in his own demiplane to reform himself. So, I mean, again, if you want to deal with morality and twists and turn and redemption and stuff like that, I love a good redemption story. I love a good corruption story. That's one of the reasons why I loved World of Warcraft and Warcraft 3 so very much because it kind of had all of that mixed in. But you could totally run that kind of campaign in the Shadowfell where your party is going trying to redeem someone for some reason and then maybe your party gets corrupted maybe they don't maybe they succeed and redeem this guy somehow and he pops out depending on how you want to run it but this is a possibility and again it leaves so very much to the imagination you can do a lot with this you will traipse through some dark areas if you choose to but it really does open a lot of doors for you to walk through and now there's one other location that i wanted to touch on as a place where a shadow crossing could exist and could linger And that would be the sites of massacres or genocide. Yes. Which, again, is a very touchy subject, and I don't want to trivialize it. But for a modern world parallel, someplace like Auschwitz would have a shadow crossing in it. That would be very reasonable. Something like Wounded Knee or maybe like Dots Along the Trail of Tears, where they, you know, had the forced migrations. The Bataan Death March in the Philippines. Again, not genocide or, you know, anything like that, but mass death, something like Hiroshima, where the atom bombs went off. Again, just unthinkably large amount of death all happening at once. These would also make some very reliable portals, most likely. Then in places like these where something so historically severe happened, these would very likely be longer term, more stable portals, I would imagine. I don't know about longer term. I would say that you can more reliably find a portal here. Fair enough. That makes sense. Because the portals are so ephemeral, they are destroyed by being exposed to direct light. So if the sun shines on a shadow crossing, it disappears. I would hazard to say that the majority of your shadow crossings, you can only find them at night and they last for a night. And when the sun comes up, they're gone. Okay, scenario idea. Okay. The old hanging tree. Okay. So you could have like the town tree that was used for executions or something like that, but it's a large heavy canopy, something like an oak or something like that. So there's always a shadowy spot at the base of the tree that light never actually fully touches. And that would be, I think, a good hook point for a shadow crossing. Yeah. Something like a burrow hole up under the roots oh, of like it. Where a badger or something lives. Like think Alice in Wonderland. Yes. When the white rabbit goes down and Alice follows. Oh god, that'd be crazy. That could be an almost permanent portal into the Shadowfell. Yeah, that would be a actually a pretty good way of doing that. Yeah. So bringing in a little bit of lore from my personal homebrew world, my world has two moons that are in sync with one another to an extent. There's one day every year where both moons are full on the same night and exactly half a year past that is one night whenever they're both new, they're both absent. So the night where they're both full is the beginning of their new year. It is their big celebration because it's brilliant and bright. You know, there's two moons in the sky casting their full glow over the entire world. And so that is a joyous celebratory night. The other one is kind of almost like a Halloween in the lead up to that night. All of the churches go out and they all consecrate their graveyards. All of the people go and they visit the graves of their ancestors, clean up the mausoleums, and they put out new candles and they pull out new flowers and they make them very bright and vibrant because on a night with no moonlight at all, that's when the borders between the material plane and the shadow fell weaken the most. And so these places where they're susceptible to shadow crossings will frequently have shadow crossings open up. And if a shadow crossing opens up in a graveyard, it's possible that a bunch of spirits are going to come out and they're going to inhabit the bodies of all of the dead in this graveyard. And suddenly you have 300 skeletons crawling out of the ground 
and walking into town. Skelly man's everywhere. Yeah. And so, you know, if they're not diligent in their preparations for this night, you can end up having an entire town wiped out by undead before the sun comes up. So yeah, that plays into when these shadow crossings would more frequently open up. So they would open up on moonless nights. Yes. They would open up on a night where you have a new moon or a night where it's overcast and cloudy and the light from the moon and the stars can't be seen. So this would be one of those times where the absence of light creates these portals. Yes. Those darkest nights, as it were, you know, when we're summoning Batman. (laughs) Yeah. The other neat thing that I did want to bring up with Shadowfell. So we talked about with the Feywilds, you do have Blackstone Vale where the lycanthropes live. I'm not going to say that this may or may not have been inspired by Underworld because it probably was and nobody will ever admit it. But the Shadowfell being the opposite plane of the Feywilds. If your lycanthropes are in the Feywilds, you have your Curse of Strahd. So you do have your vampires very much so in Shadowfell as well. So that's what largely Curse of Strahd is. It's a good vampire campaign. So that is a thing you can run in the Feywilds as well. Well, the nature of the Shadowfell lends itself to having vampires. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, they're immortal undead that tend to go evil. Yes. Just like the Feywild would lend itself to lycanthropes because they're very bestial and they're controlled or they're affected by the moon so again these are your two opposites so if you want to have a good vampire slaying campaign you want to summon your inner van helsing shadowfell go yeah if you've ever played the game darkest dungeon which is a wonderful game it's on steam i believe it's on switch too it's a little 2d game but the atmosphere and the feel of the game is so amazingly well done the art of the game's beautiful it's simple it's just an extremely well put together game it's been out for a while it's cheap but that would be perfect for shadowfell and especially talking about these cities in shadowfell where there's kind of crumbling and broken down great inspiration for doing that would probably be darkest dungeon if you ever get a chance to sit down and play or watch some playthrough videos you'll definitely get a feel for it yeah um i'm trying to remember uh dark souls oh yeah that would be great. Dark Souls would also be another great inspiration for a Shadowfell Yeah, Dark Souls, totally, because everything's empty. Everything's just kind of slow and dead until you're being attacked by stuff, but it doesn't have that. Here's a bunch of flashy stuff. It's that very dreary, foggy, slog through things. Yeah, Dark Souls, great call. And then you have these very brief, localized bits of Absolute light terror. and warmth. Yes, and that too. <laughs> well... The absolute terror is a little more frequent. <laughs> These little pockets of sanctuary within, and that is something that you end up getting in the Shadowfell too, is they're fleeting and you rarely find them in the same place twice. But there are these little bastions of sanity. Yeah. Little oases, as it were. Yeah. And now I will admit that I didn't get a chance to do a whole lot of research on them, but there are individuals who roam through the Shadowfell who would fall into that category and they are the Vistani and the Vistani are quite obviously based on the Romani in our real world. Yeah. And I know that there's been a lot of discussion about how a great deal of the Vistani has been modeled on Romani stereotype and how the reissue of curse of Strahd fairly recently addressed portions of that i don't know how well they addressed it i haven't read it i have it i do need to go through and read curse of straw that's on my to-do list i have one of the first printings and i will admit i haven't actually gone through the adventure portion of it i just went through and read the bit on the vistani in the these are the factions that you can run into portion of the book before the adventure actually really starts and i'm going to go out and tell you all right at the top I'm not going to go into a discussion on the Vistani or their parallels with the Romani, mainly because I don't know how much of what I quote unquote know about Romani culture is actually true and how much of it is stereotype. And because I don't know what's what, I'm just going to assume that everything that I have ever been told about Romani culture is a stereotype and should be ignored. That's definitely a safe play, and that's probably fairly close to true, unfortunately. And again, Romani culture is definitely taking a battering from 
Western culture in general as they're the ones you can kind of poke fun at. Just like living here in the South in the United States, you know, it's the idea of the Southern Hucklebuck, you know, and just kind of the rednecked yokel. Kind of the same thing where it's a stereotype and for some reason it lasts because nobody thinks it's going to bother or hurt anybody, but it really does bother a lot of people, particularly the people who live there, particularly the Romani as it were. And you'll see this stereotype and it's part because it's tied into a lot of Victorian lore, you know, when a lot of these old texts like, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and things like that came out, that's how they were looked upon and those became part of the story. And so those stereotypes stuck for whatever reason. You'll see the same thing in like Vampire the Masquerade. You have different clans that are supposed to reflect the Romani and they're generally less savory types. BM. Obviously everyone's a fortune teller. Everyone's some sort of pickpocket or thief. You see the same thing with Hunchback of Notre Dame. Again, you have the disparagement upon the Romani culture there. It's just super prevalent. That's not the only issue with the Hunchback of Notre Dame, but that's another discussion for another day. Another day, yes. So, and again, be aware of the people at your table, be aware of cultures. It's hard sometimes because you do it without thinking about it. And that's what makes it even harder is you think you're doing a perfectly normal thing. And then you realize that, yes, you are in fact being a dick at the table and you have to do your best. Don't be a dick at the table. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of it has come from the fact that for centuries, the Jews and the Romani were the scapegoats of Europe. Absolutely. They were these cultural enclaves that kept to themselves. And because of that, they were always put into the light of the other. And they were always the first to be blamed when something went wrong. They didn't assimilate. They kept their culture, which I think in its own right is a beautiful, beautiful thing because culture gets lost and then it's gone forever. So they didn't immediately blend in. They kept to themselves and they kept their culture. And so like Ian said, they immediately became the outsiders. Yes. And because of that, we do pay attention to we pay a whole lot of attention to the fact that six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust, but there were a lot of Romani that were rounded up and killed during the Holocaust as well. Yes. And the Romani culture as a whole still hasn't completely recovered from that. Not that you can ever truly recover from something like that. Right. But another issue with the Romani is they kind of caught things from both sides, too. So if you don't know the range, the Romani tends to be Eastern Europe along kind of the Balkans area and then moving more towards Asia Minor, what we know as Turkey today. That's where you had, you know, Vlad the Impaler and Dracul and things like that. When the Ottoman Empire first started trying to push back into Europe before their expansion, they pushed through the Romani territories and lands, uh, Moldavia, Romania, things like that. So to the Westerns, the Romani tended to be too much influenced by the East. Those on the East saw them as the same as the Westerns, you know, and so they really got hammered and disparaged by both sides of the coin on this one. So, I mean, they really... It's a rough place to be historically and geographically. And again, they kind of got battered on all sides. They really did. Anyway, uh, let's... <laughs> <laughs> and now for something happy. And now for something happy. But the Vistani in the Shadowfell are able to travel the Shadowfell relatively unmolested. In the Curse of Strahd adventure, they are notable for being individuals who can come and go from Barovia from Strahd von Zarevich's personal demiplane. They can come and go at will, and Strahd has decreed that they should not be molested because at some point before he became a vampire, he was rescued by some Vistani. And so he has this personal sense of obligation to the Vistani so that he allows them free travel through his lands. Right. And a certain amount of protection. And again, this kind of ties in with that whole Victorian concept of, you know, where Vlad the Impaler and the Rakul came from the areas that, you know, unfortunately Romani went. If you wanted to try to update this, because again, it's not a race or anything, but it's rather a mystical like bloodline that connects them all. Make it dragon blood, maybe. Maybe there's some descendant of a dragon type or something like that. And I mean, really at that point, you could, you know, pull any kind of racial implication out and do it that way. And I think that could be a way to kind of round that out so it's not quite so culturally harsh or, or you know. Well, the Vistani are not a race. Right. They're saying there's a there, there, are, there are multiple races yes. associated with the Vistani. Right. 
But when they're saying where well, there's that mystical bloodline, you could actually make that bloodline, like I said, make it make it a dragon line or something like that. I mean, there are ways you can work around that if you're trying to break some stereotypes, as it were. Yeah, there are some races like the Fallen Asimar would probably lend themselves well to a Vistani sort of culture. Right. I almost want to call it a sort of tragic fall. But I don't want to refer to it like that. If we were to do something like that, we would have to make sure to completely divorce it from its original Romani influence. Right. Now, here's the thing with the Shadowfell, too, is, you know, you've got these people that come in and out. And this is, I think, one of the most horrifying things about the Shadowfell is because it's a mirror plane, there are humanoid or human type people that are just born into the shadow plane. What the hell? Absolutely, yeah. What the hell? Who deserves that? Who, what did you do in what past life that you start square one in Shadowfell? And that's all you ever know. You sit there and you go from day one to an 80 year old man in the Shadowfell, not knowing anything different. What did you do? <laughs> yeah, that would be a rough existence. Yeah. And so, I mean, just that, it doesn't have to be Vistani. There could be other things because they're just everyday people stuck here because that's where they were born. And so, hey, here's your card. <laughs> yeah. Because at the end of the day, the worlds of D&D are loosely based on medieval Western Europe. Right. And so in medieval Western Europe, you rarely went more than about 20 miles away from wherever you were born. So you were born there, you were raised there, you married there, you had kids there, you died there. Yeah. Ooh, it's a, again, this is just a dark, dark place. Yeah. So let's... Uh, Let's go towards a little bit happier, <laughs> a little bit of happier ground. Let's talk about some adventure hooks. Okay. Let's talk about some stuff that could send you into the Shadowfell. There are some classes that would lend themselves well to a Shadowfell campaign. Yes. The first one that jumps out in my mind is the Gloomstalker Ranger. Okay. Not the first in my mind, but yes, that makes perfect sense. Because while they are, according to their flavor text, they're designed to infiltrate the underdark there are aspects of the Shadowfell that i think would lend themselves really well to the storyline the character progression for a gloomstalker ranger in the Shadowfell. that makes sense and that is something we forgot to touch on yes we forgot to talk about the shadow dark because you know what the underdark isn't dark enough you thought that the fey dark was scary no 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 (laughs) the shadow dark is scary yes you know this is where you find shadow dragons yeah this is this is where you end up getting some of the big mean nasty stuff yeah this is where you start pulling out your second edition monster manuals and you are gonna wipe the party (laughs) right yeah it's it's not a question of is someone going to die is a question of how many of you are going to die yeah it's uh, shadow dark is not is not to be trifled with no not at all. <laughs> yeah, so so that would be one of the classes that I think would lend itself well to the Shadowfell. Absolutely. Another very obvious choice would be the Necromancer Wizard because of the prevalence of undeath within the Shadowfell. Because of the presence of all of these spirits, both the ones in transit to Lotharna and those who have been cast out or denied entry to Lotharna. I would almost make it that like the school of necromancy. So if you had a necromancy wizard that in order to level up or to do things within your school would have to be in Shadowfell because you're not going to allow that on the material plane. That place would get burnt down in a second. Right. That would be the place where you would set up your home base, where you set up your lab. Yeah. And like I said, the actual school of necromancy, like the actual, like where your archmages and stuff would be, would most likely be there somewhere. <laughs> and again, that depends on the world. It does. Because I think that there's a house in Eberron, if I remember correctly, where they actually perform necromancy and reanimate the bodies of their dead to be servants within the house. Right. And it is considered to be a great honor to be reanimated for this purpose so that you continue to have purpose. Going back to the Dragonlance novels, because I just, I enjoyed them so much when I read them years and years ago. And they were some of the first actual like D&D novels I read. But in the Dragonlance series, the mages are broken up more or less by alignment. So you had white robes, red robes, and black robes. And if you ever, if you hear anything like, you know, a black hat hacker or a red hat hacker. It actually comes from that. That's where they get that concept from. But 
obviously the whites were your healers. They did all your good magic, things like that. Your blacks were your evil, your necromancers. Your red were your neutral. And depending on where you fell, you tended to go one way or the other. But the red-robed wizards or the red wizards would tend to do the necromantic studies not out of a desire of evil, but out of a either an insatiable curiosity, which I would totally be guilty of, or to better understand things to combat them later on, kind of like fighting fire with fire, that sort of concept. And so I could kind of see that blending as well, where everything wouldn't have to be shunted to the Shadowlands. But that thing where you're talking about where they raised, they used necromancies to raise servants and it was a point of honor. I could definitely see that as a red mage use of necromancy. Yeah. Another thing, basically any paladin or cleric, specifically grave domain clerics. Yes. Twilight domain cleric too. Yes. Twilight domain as well. See, Twilight Domain is one of the newer ones, so it's one that I'm less familiar with. But the clerics who specifically deal with the dead, yeah, they would be the sort of characters that would benefit a lot from a campaign or a campaign arc that went into the Shadowfell. Maybe one of your party members dies, and whenever you go to resurrect them, the spirit doesn't come back. And so you have to go into the Shadowfell to figure out where their spirit is. Oh, that would be... Yeah, because maybe they commune with the Raven Queen and the Raven Queen says, this soul hasn't come to me. Oh, so it has gotten lost in transit between the body and Lotharna. And so you have to go into the Shadowfell and find it. I like it. That would be something. It could be something like closing a shadow crossing that is causing the dead to rise and you end up having to go through to the other side because maybe there's someone on the other side holding it open. And so you have to find whoever's holding it open on the other side and deal with them so that the portal will close. But the problem is that most of these portals are one way. So not only do you have to go into the shadow fell of your own accord to find whoever this is to close this portal, but now you have to figure out how to find a portal in the shadow fell to get back. Yeah, that would be a wonderful challenge. So that would make a good campaign arc. Yes. For three or four levels, maybe. Paladins are all over this. <laughs> yes, paladins are all over this. Even things like an Oathbreaker. An Oathbreaker may have to go into the shadow fell for maybe an Oathbreaker paladin is one of those who has a broken soul because they broke their oath. That'd be interesting. That would make a great broken soul character. That would be amazing. And so as part of their redemption arc, maybe they have to go into the shadow fell and undergo some sort of ritual where their soul is actually removed from their body and they have to confront their broken soul and figure out a way to restore it. That would be great. Or, you know, find the fragments of their soul that are missing. Yeah, personally, I was looking really hard at either Oath of Redemption, which would be a great one, or Oath of Conquest, where you're going in and you're just going to conquer and take the area over. And, you know, you're going to instill some holy justice just right there, you know. Oh, yeah. And Oath of Conquest, that could be really interesting because maybe what your goal is, is to go and find some of these spirits that are the spirits of these conquerors, these bloody conquerors that were so evil that they couldn't get into Lotharna. Yeah. And figure out a way to find a host body for these spirits to bring them back with you to the material plane and, you know, shunt these spirits into a host on the condition that they serve you. Right. Or maybe that they can redeem themselves enough that they can actually achieve an eternal punishment, you know, to a point where they could, enter an afterlife that they wouldn't just be purely kicked out. Yeah, that could be a way to do it too. Another great oath would be the Oath of Watchers. That's another one of the newer ones that I'm not real familiar yeah, so with. Yeah, reading this text, and this is actually, this is something I'd want to do with Magnus if I could later on, you know, if I ported him from third to fifth. But Oath of Watchers binds paladins to protect mortal realms from the predations of extraplanar creatures. So yes. this is solely like you are going to stand in the breach between the portal of Shadowfell and the material plane, and you're going to fill that hole with, with your shield and your smashy mace of smashing. You are going to close this shadow crossing with the corpses of the undead. Yes, that would make for such... I don't know, that'd be a great character to play and a great campaign and that you are somehow like fighting the thinning of the veil and you are trying to hold the tide back. Yeah, that could be a great one. It's kind of a, was it the Grey Wardens in Dragon Age? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that sort of feel. Absolutely. 
So, I don't know, do you have more? I'm, yeah, that's about all I got. Yeah, so I mean, this there's a lot of things you can do with Shadowfell. I don't know if you can hear it in our voices, but we are flagging a bit because, again, it's just a grim topic and I really need some chocolate right about now. Yeah, you know, to contrast with how we were at the end of the Feywild episode, we were at the end of the Feywild episode and we were all giddy and excited and coming up with all these great, wonderful ideas and just going on and on and on and on. We don't have that. We don't have the giddy. We don't have that with the Shadowfell. We don't have the giddiness. No, we have some ideas. And I really like this Oath of the Watchers, I think. That would actually be a wonderful campaign. That could make an epic campaign, just a party of paladins. Oh, I just want to run a party of paladins anyway. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, the Shadowfell can be done. And if you're doing a full campaign in the Shadowfell, understand it's going to be dark. It's going to be hard. So please bring levity to the table. I think for me personally, Shadowfell would be something I would dip my toes into on occasion, but I wouldn't spend a lot of time there. And that's just because how I react to certain things personally. Yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. You have to be a person with a certain mindset and a certain outlook to really spend a whole lot of time playing a game based in the shadow. Right. It does take a certain amount of fortitude. That said, again, there is a lot to offer there. There is a lot of things you can do. It leaves a ton to the imagination. And a really good story writer, a really good DM, really good players at the table, you could make an amazing campaign. Personally, I might do a couple one-offs here. Like I said, I might dip my toes in for a session or two for you've got to find said object probably at Gloomrot or Evernight. But I wouldn't spend personally more than a handful of sessions here just because I would leave the table feeling tired and we play to have fun. Right. Yeah, that is definitely something to keep in mind. I don't think I would run more than about a five or six session arc into the Shadowfell. I think that would be about the limit of where I would go, mainly because it is such a bleak and dreary place that I would have trouble coming up with more content to fill. I would end up having just this huge, empty, barren waste, which would be appropriate for the Shadowfell, but it wouldn't be good gameplay. So it would be something that I would try to avoid that said, I know we've got some great storytellers out there, you know, listening to us. If you come up with like an amazing idea for the Shadowfell, run with it. Give us an idea, you know, and say, hey, I think this would be an amazing idea. And maybe that's something we could tinker with and work with and build up for you. Everything is what you make it. It's all based on imagination. Just because this isn't my particular flavor and I borderline, I dance on that old school golf line pretty hard a lot of days. And even this, while very interesting, I wouldn't do all the time. Not really my flavor, but if it's your flavor, rock it out. Absolutely. And like I said, if you come up with a great idea, run with it. Feel free to share it. I'd love to hear a great campaign that wasn't specifically, like I said, if you're going to do a vampire campaign like a Curse of Strahd, this is perfect for that. That Oath of the Watchers, I think, would make a good campaign or a good arc. If you've got another idea, definitely let us know, because I'd like to see something you could do in Shadowfell that just wasn't soul-draining and bleak. Right, yeah. So I think that pretty well does it for us for today. Absolutely. And next week, we are definitely going to try to pop up with something maybe a bit more jovial. <laughs> I think next week is going to be our interview with Moth Prophet. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So back when we were doing our spell crafting episode, we talked a bit about the Reddit post that Moth Prophet wrote and touched briefly on the bottom section where he was talking about doing spellcrafting and how to balance out spellcrafting. And so we reached out to him and he was very interested in coming on. So we're going to be having him on to talk about the 90% of his post that happens above that, <laughs> which is talking about soft resistances versus hard resistances in D&D 5e. So the hard resistance being this has a resistance to poison. So it takes half damage from poison. It has advantage on saving throws against poison, or this is immune to poison. So you can't poison it regardless, you know, putting conditional features on that to make it a little more interesting at the table. So that's the sort of things that we're going to be talking about next week. Hey, mechanics. I love mechanics. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. So thank you everyone for joining us today. If you have any suggestions or things you would like to hear on the show, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing RP prompts six days a week based off of my Shakespearean insult page a day calendar. Uh, we are also on Facebook and Instagram at Undercommon Taste. Uh, we have recently launched our YouTube channel, which right now is just going to have the podcast episodes. But eventually, once we start doing some play tests and start doing some actual play game sessions, we're hoping to put those up on our YouTube page as well. By the time this comes out, hopefully we'll have a Patreon active. We've been going through the precursor steps to get our Patreon set up and we're about to launch it. So keep your eyes open on the Twitter account. We will definitely put a big post up whenever that goes live. If you are really enjoying the show and you want to help us out a little bit financially, that would be wonderful. We would love to hear from you. We are on most podcasting services, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, most of the big ones. So if you would, leave us a rating, leave us a comment, let us Thank know you what you think for another of the podcast. Of Undercommon it taste. really helps if you get enjoyed our visibility what you heard, out please and pass it along to your friends. Find us. If you so have comments, suggestions, or ideas, really, really you can email them to us at so, yeah, undercommontaste@gmail.com. Go grab some chocolate. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Happy gaming. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.